Welcome back. We took a little break for the holiday season, a mid-season break, if you will. A lot of TV shows are doing that, so we decided to as well. Actually, we just have a lot on our plates right now with the launch of this new show and the book release and a few other things. Free Med Ed is going through a lot of transitions, so thank you for sticking with us. And we do have some really great guests on for the rest of season one and already starting to plan and interview some topics and some guests for season two. So thank you for sticking with us. I hope you enjoy this episode and more details on season two to come. Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Today's guest is Dr. Tom Bernacki, who is a Michigan-based podiatrist, which is a specialty in ankle and foot disorders. He has four years of clinical and residency education and helps run a residency program. Podiatry is one of the more unique medical specialties and one of the few that also holds a non-MD or DO physician degree. Tom will help demystify this educational difference and give us a scope of what a student might expect in a podiatry rotation. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining me. I know this is a topic that uh, you've already taught me a lot just in our discussions so far, but before we get into all of the exceptions and uh, differences in the podiatry degree, I would like to start off with a question. What is the funniest or the scariest thing that you've ever seen in the hospital setting? So I don't know how gross I can get here, but I figure since everybody's going into medicine, we can really push, push the barrier. So my first week of residency, they always try and break you in a little bit. And uh, it's in the middle of the night and a patient came in with gangrene in their foot. And essentially what you have to do is resect all the gangrenous tissue. And I remember it was about 3 or 4 a.m. And uh, I was pretty low on sleep. And uh, things are a little bit more loose in the middle of the night in the OR. And I remember the patient wasn't, it, it was under sedation anesthesia, not quite general anesthesia. And after the surgery was done, his toe was laying on the side of the table. And I remember the patient leaned over and grabbed his own big toe and was holding it about an inch from his face. So that was the welcome to the profession moment for me. <laughs> uh, was it all uh, green and necrosed at that point? Oh, yeah. 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 He wasn't bothered one bit. Uh, for a second there, I thought you were going to say he like licked it or something. That no, just would no. have been over. You know, that, that I would have had to leave off the show. <laughs> <laughs> what a scared people away. Yeah, a little. All right. So with your role in the profession of podiatry, can you explain some of the differences here, the different degrees and, and uh, sort of how you guys are viewed, specialized, uh, et cetera, compared to DOs and MDs? Absolutely. And you know, this is something that really scares people from getting into the profession because rather than the MD and DO people see the initials DPM. So from a legal standpoint, we have a very strong political action committee. And in every state throughout the country, the United States, uh, the scope is generally the same as MDDO. Of course, given the differences within specialties, you know, you can't go and do something completely outside your specialty. But those three letters really scare people. So What's happening is the profession's really growing. 
Uh, we have three-year mandatory residencies. Some uh, programs have four-year residencies, and a good portion of people are doing one-year fellowships these days. So about up to four or five years total, whereas in the past, podiatry in the 80s, there was almost no residency or even just a one or two-year residency. So the profession has really come a long way. Well, it seems like that adds a lot of credibility to your specialization within the area and, and your knowledge of foot, ankle, and, and the rest. Yeah. So the difference is, so I have a lot of great friends. So where we overlap is with the orthopedic foot and ankle uh, specialty, which is a different pathway because there you can either do five years of general orthopedics and then a one-year program of foot and ankle orthopedics. And there's a lot of overlap. I have two great friends that are foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons. And where we differ is on a realistic note, in podiatry, we see some of the less traumatic things uh, because we're not a 15-minute response trauma profession. We're not always in the hospital. So we would handle a lot of the initial toe infections, you know, those gross videos you see online of people getting ingrown toenails. We All the diabetics, my clinic, for example, I see thousands, if not tens of thousands of wounds per year, you know, with our residents. So that makes up the bulk of it is the general care of these chronic infected degenerating feet, as well as, you know, your plantar fasciitis, your heel pain. And on the other hand, orthopedic foot and ankle specialists, if you get into a car accident and you have to come in in the middle of the night, they will overlap more in that aspect. And for the most part, I think that my friends who are in that specialty, we were very well handling it that way. And kind of that blurry line in the middle, of course, both specialties can overlap, but I think that's what makes podiatry unique. And that's the niche we fill. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't even heard of the DPM degree prior to us contacting. And I don't know if I'm just in a bubble compared to other students when it comes to this. I've never had a foot problem to that degree or any family that's had to go to a podiatrist. So I guess I sort of assumed that it was a, a similar pathway, something in medicine, maybe a subspecialty down the line, but I didn't know that there's two different ways to do it, either through a subspecialization with MD and, D stu and DO students or a completely different degree through the DPM degree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I would agree. I would say 90% of my patients are in approaching the retirement years. Young, healthy people are flexible. Their health is generally good enough. Whereas the only time they would have a true foot and ankle surgical need would be a trauma. And that usually ends you up emergently in the ER where either a emergency general surgeon is there or a foot and ankle orthopedic surgeon or a general orthopedic surgeon. So specifically, this numbers wise, there is, I think at this point, somewhere around 17,000 practicing podiatrists in the United States. So the profession is very large and it is growing as each year goes by. So for students in this instance, if they're looking for a rotation, maybe in podiatry, would they specifically look, if they were MDDO students, would they only look for orthopedic surgery or would they also be able to get a rotation through podiatry and would DPM students also be able to go outside of podiatry for rotations? So that's kind of the tricky aspect is I'll, I'll start at the beginning. DPM is a separate pathway starting in medical school. So year one of medical school, there is currently nine podiatry medical colleges and all nine are associated 
with a MD or DO school. So the first two years prior to taking your first USMLE, in our case, it has a different name, but you share your first two years of general science courses together. And then our exam differs slightly. There's still three steps to it. Then the next two years, while we do explore uh, other specialties as in the DPM degree, the majority of the time is, I would say about 60% is spent in foot and ankle specific rotations. And the history, what started that is, again, it used to be a four-year college without a residency. And that initial pathway just didn't really line up as it progressed from the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. It's reaching a point where at least one of the schools is trying to merge into an MD degree, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, Right now, it doesn't look like that's likely. Okay. So it's kind of like I think you mentioned earlier with DO schools when they first started off, some of the obstacles they had, and then as they've become more credentialed and better known, uh, sort of the same pathway that DPM degree seems to be going to some degree. Absolutely. And one benefit is realistically, I think what scares some students off, there's a lot of misconceptions. And I know this scared me. And as a lot of our residents progress, how does billing, how does finding a job in the hospital work? How does licensing work in the future? The bottom line is the insurance world is moving towards healthcare practitioners rather than individual degrees. So whether it's DO, DPM, MD, you're still hired by a hospital. A lot of people go into the RVU, which is the relative value unit compensation system, or you interact with the insurance company. And at that point, realistically, insurance companies view you as a number or an identifier code, and it makes no difference for them. So do can MD students potentially have a DPM preceptor, I guess? I've never never seen that, so I'm curious. So in our residency program, we have a lot of different specialties. So uh, in our hospital, we have a general surgery program and a family medicine and internal medicine program. So while it's not an official rotation, I've had had internal medicine residents rotate with me and family medicine residents rotate with me. Never so much a student, but What we do is we see a lot of patients. I would say the majority of wound care centers in the United States are staffed by podiatrists because the majority of wounds, rather than like a gluteal pressure wound, are foot wounds. So in that case, I would say while it's not a specific pathway you could fully commit to as an MDDO, we do have a lot of residents rotate through with us. And uh, it's almost as an elective wound care and lighter surgical type pathway. So they have scrubbed in and surgeries just to see a different perspective. But if the question is, is it official pathway as an MDDO student? The answer is not right now. Interesting. Okay. So there's a lot of complexities there. I was just thinking for instance, if there are mostly medical students or MDDO students that are listening to this in the future, that if they wanted to set up a rotation, would it count as an accredited rotation towards their course load? Or would it just be an elective that they kind of took as a non-credit just to gain some extra experience? So specifically in that regard, you would not receive credits as a student. My only experience is 
at when people are actually residents, they do rotate through as an elective. I think the benefit of podiatry, at least from my, my end, is while we still do see a lot of patients, the mood can generally be more fun because compared compared to say some of my vascular surgery friends, there's not quite the stress or the brutal hours. So I guess you could say it's one of the more enjoyable time off rotations. We do more of a nine to five in most cases, unless you're on call. But the beauty is with foot problems, unless it's an unstable gas gangrene and you're on call, it's going to be a pretty enjoyable rotation for you for the most part. Now I kind of want to get into some of the preceptor type questions and see the similarities and differences, I suppose, from what MD and DO student preceptors might do or say or think about versus DPM, if there is a difference. And I guess we can start that with what are some of the good qualities or bad qualities that you know make a, a preceptor effective at their job? So from my end, I always kind of, I jokingly said it was this way. Once you make it through medical school and your residency, you're either in a really happy mood and you're a very pleasant person, or on the other hand, you're very angry, driven, high intensity type person. There's a little bit of overlap, but I always personally thought the people that taught me the most were very energetic, very eager people. I know we'll be talking about some of these principles later, but if the underlying quality of the preceptor is they do want you to succeed, they want you to learn, they're eager and enthusiastic, they will do very well for you. And that's what I try to do with my residents. On the other hand, I thought some of the less enjoyable ones were the people that purposely make you stay up all night they're really hard on you. They try and push you to the limits. I always felt like maybe they thought they were helping me, but I did retain a lot less from that. That's very common too. Yeah. There seems to be this real huge pushback, especially from a lot of the other interviews that I've conducted here about getting away from the shame and blame and pushing too hard, uh, especially if you're still in the medical student aspect. But even for residents, there is not always a need to go as far as some might feel or that they're used to because that's how they went through med school. So absolutely. Yeah. Good to see is pretty similar despite uh, the different pathways here. Yeah. Uh, You know, one statistic sticks out to me. I remember this. They did a sleep test on pilots. So, you know, pilots who fly planes and surgeons. And after people stayed up for 24 hours, they asked them the honest question, can you still function with how tired you are? And something like 95% of the pilots said they can't and they need a break, but something like 75% of the surgeons said they're perfectly fine and it's zero issue. And, and the theory behind that is, uh, you know, I'm off on my numbers a little bit, but it, it was a very stark contrast. But I think the reasoning behind that is, is that we're fashioned to be embarrassed to, to pretend that we're tired, but as you know, you know, with your other memory show, for example, the brain does not work on very little sleep and people just can't function. And that's a proven thing. True. The Medical Anemonist podcast, almost every single interview I've conducted there, someone mentioned sleep at some point because the brain just doesn't work that well. So you need to know your limits and admit them and take a break when you need to. So what are maybe a couple of uh, learning experiences or maybe a mistake that you've seen or experienced that really taught you something about your career and about where you fit in it? So 
one thing I know myself as a resident as well, um, and starting out early in my career is you see some of the seasoned and very hardworking doctors, and they can see a lot of patients and everything goes efficiently and smoothly. And sometimes as a resident and student, you try and put your uh, your foot down on the gas 100%. And I know this has been a problem with for me and a lot of my students and residents are when you are a student, realistically, you don't quite know what you're doing yet. Even at the beginning of your career, after you're done residency, there's always more to learn. And when, when you push faster than you can, you're going to make mistakes. When new residents start, they they want to get right into the case. They want to start doing stuff. They want to see 30 patients in a day. They want to do all these surgeries. But what you do have to realize is the attending physician or the attending surgeon, they have to get to know you. They have to see that you're confident and calm and that you're not trying to rush while you don't quite know what you're doing. And that's kind of the bottom line is it brings us back to that not admitting you're tired under poor sleep conditions type scenario is sometimes admit that you still have to learn a lot. I love when students and residents ask for my opinion rather than trying to do it. So I would say that's the number one thing. People actually like a humble student. You don't have to quote articles. You don't have to show off. You don't have to move 100 miles an hour. In most educational programs, we we are here to teach you. And if you're a good student, sometimes that's what it takes. You don't always have to be a superhero. Exactly. And especially when you have a team, why not bounce ideas off of them? Why not double check? Why not get some advice before potentially jumping the gun into something that you know it's for the patient? So you don't want to harm them by going too fast. Absolutely. And that that's kind of the thing in medical school. I think it's changing quite a bit like the hour restrictions they put on residents. And what you mentioned before is there's a realization coming that even though we can pretend to be superhuman sometimes, especially attendings and programs that you're auditioning for, I would say from personal experience, when we take students, and I know selecting a podiatry student or for our residency can be different than some MD DOs, maybe some programs still select on these criteria, but I love a humble student who's eager to learn when they don't pretend to know everything because that can be scary. The person who pretends they already know everything, you know, I have, you don't think this would happen, but people sometimes show off that they know more than some of the practitioners, some of the PAs, some of the nurses. You never want to show, show that as you're rotating as a student. That's probably worse that's a worse look than having bad grades or having poor extracurriculars when you're applying for these programs is just poor people skills. So make sure you're humble, uh, you're nice to everybody, and that you're open to learning. That is, I think, the key to being a great student. That's perfect. I actually think that was echoed in one of the more recent residency program director surveys that the step one score is still pretty high, but it's starting to go down a little bit from their ranking of importance from one to five. But the people skills and getting along with the rest of the staff, especially the ancillary staff, seems to be going up consistently. So I, I like that that's kind of where your mindset is too. And definitely good advice for students to not worry so much about the grades. It's not important after you pass it. Worry about the patients, worry about the staff, get along with everyone in the hospital. That's uh, much better in the long run. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is something 
I think I'm allowed to say on the podcast, but uh, officially residency directors don't say this type of stuff, but your people skills, how you act professionally, how you take care of themselves, because when we see patients, we have to make a great presentation to them. It's not easy going in to see a patient when they're in the ER and they need a procedure and they're stressed out. They don't want to be seeing you. They clearly didn't think they needed a procedure until they found out they had an infection. And you as the attending have to tell them they need something. The last thing you want to worry about is a student who's shuffling around, making a bad impression, poorly groomed. That's a bad reflection in that scenario. Nobody cares about grades at that point. you know. And I would say from a personal standpoint and the program I work in, I really don't look at the grades. You can tell pretty quickly how professional, energetic, and eager someone is by their people skills and how they present themselves from a social standpoint, just interacting with you in clinic and meeting patients. I love it. I'm glad you said that. And I hope that more residency directors will come out and start saying things like this. I believe a lot more believe in that type of mentality and approach to picking a student, but might not feel comfortable saying certain things. So yeah. I'm glad you were able to do so. Yeah. You know what? I don't know. That's that's why we purposely don't mention the program names or anything, but I think that's something I don't think we should be embarrassed to say it, but it's the truth. I heard a saying once, it's life is a lot more like high school than it is like college. And what that means is in college, you're viewed in, in medical school, you're viewed by your grades. But once you start coming out of medical school, realistically, you have to make friends with people, you know, working with other specialties myself, if I went to an infectious disease doctor, or a vascular surgeon, and I tried to make a comment, or like correct them on something, they would be offended, you know, and that's the truth. Like if somebody tries to show off how much they know, rather than being a great friend and supporting you, people don't work well together. And students should look at the jobs and the programs they're applying for in the same way. Very good point. Since we're kind of talking about the students here and we've gone over a lot of your expectations and how they can, you know, make a good show of themselves and not annoy you or the rest of the staff, you know, show humility and people skills. Are there any other things that students should do maybe in preparation before starting a rotation, any study skills or reaching out to people, anything like that? So a lot of the time is when you go to a program, and again, I speak more for myself and my program that I work in, is you don't want to deal with another burden for the most part. And I think that will be true against most residency programs you're applying for. Sometimes I think students think it's a great idea to constantly ask questions to get involved. And while that is good, you have to know the time and the place. I know when I was coming out of medical school, there was an emphasis on write all these letters, all these thank you cards, make sure you're constantly asking questions, make sure you're showing off how many articles you've been a part of or writing. Realistically, the keys are make your preceptor's job easier. That will give them more time to help you. Of course, look them up, but you don't have to read all their research papers. You don't have to necessarily spend a lot of time memorizing anything, any procedure that they've ever done. Be familiar with it, but only to the degree to make their job easier and then be a pleasant person to be around. Then you write your card to get out of there, but don't go overboard. Don't make yourself stick out 
like a sore thumb, there are people who overdo it. So for example, if you have really extraordinary extracurricular activities, so say we had one student who was part of a business and he was trying to show off the business, the doctors saw him as someone who overachieved so much that they would potentially be distracted from the program that they were applying for. So don't be almost like a square peg fitting in a round hole. Fit in, have a great personality, have good enough grades, but you don't have to go so overboard that it's almost uncomfortable and makes it extra work for people to acknowledge these things. Does that make sense a little bit? I'm kind of getting general, make it easy for the preceptor. Don't be a brown noser, you know, know what you need to do and take some responsibility for the rotation that you're currently in. Absolutely. Yeah. You say it much more eloquently. That's why you're the host. (laughs) (laughs) I just guide these things. There you go. Since we're on the topic of being a good or bad student rotating, what is something that a student might look for um, if they wanted to ask for a letter recommendation? Do they ask for that when they start the rotation, kind of say, hey, I'm just preparing you, this is what I'm going for? Or is it just through them showing you through the rotation that they're very interested? From my standpoint, work hard, show up on time, have a great personality. I would say out of the, the doctors that I work with, no one will ever say no for a letter rec- recommendation. And again, some I'm sure there are people who would, but the difference is if you do a really good job and you really help them out during your rotation, you were very pleasant to be around. People will write you an exceptional letter and go overboard. De- and depending on what you need that letter for, I know MD, DO schools, you do need specific recommendations. For, for, for our profession, it could be a little bit different. It's really, it's a smaller, tight-knit community, but we will go out and actually contact program directors in areas or even our own and, and strongly recommend because it's not the biggest profession in the world. We, we know people on a personal level. And a lot of the things I've mentioned is if you make our job easier, we would love to make your life easier as well. I agree. And yeah, there are probably some important differences there from MD and DO perspectives, but we're not going to really know the inner workings of those too well. So Absolutely. I wanted to come back to one thing that we kind of jumped over before because we had some interesting topics about the students. So I wanted to skip to those questions, but I do want to see how it might be, I'm guessing, pretty similar to my past experiences with the one-minute preceptor model. So that is the five-step process that step one is get a commitment, two, probing for supporting evidence, three, reinforcing what was done well, and four, giving guidance about errors or omission, and then five, teaching the general principle or that's pearl. Is that kind of the same mentality and same model that you generally use, or do you notice some differences there, and how do you go about it with a student? You know, that's a great model. And I would say the the funny part is kind of coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning is the good and the bad preceptor. The person who has a good eager preceptor, I would say not even knowing about the one minute preceptor model before interview, I would say people who are enthusiastic about teaching their residents and their students roughly follow this pathway. They will go ahead and do that. But then on the other hand, there's people who teach kind of in the the punishment model. If you didn't do this, fix it, go learn how to do it. So it really comes down to how eager 
and enthusiastic uh, the preceptor is. So that is that is a great model. While I would say I don't follow it exactly like this, generally that's a great model, and I do try to stick to these rough principles. That's why I love it so much. It's very simple. It's easy for preceptors to understand, even though most are usually implementing something similar to this. They've never really defined it before. And it's great for students to understand so they can know what's being done, what could be done better, and uh, maybe even have that sort of conversation with the preceptor if they feel like a step is being missed. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, it, that is a great five-step program. So personal question to sort of wrap up the ending here a little bit, and you can choose either one of these, but the first one is if there's anything that you would have done differently in your educational career, what would it be? Or the second question, if you had one dream that would happen in medicine in your lifetime, what would it be? Wow. Two great questions. I would say I'll answer the first question just because I could go go on forever with the second one. But the first question is, there's a great book and it's called The White Coat Investor. And it has nothing to do with money, but it was, it would be to have a focus on what you want to do with your life. So the mistake I would say I made was I tried to go overboard with all the extracurricular stuff. So what I mean by that is rather than pursuing my profession or say certain types of medical school, I took an extra two years to do a master's degree. I uh, spent an extra year doing certain extracurriculars. What you really have to do is start being urgent. This is a long, long, long career. And before you know it, you're going to be coming out the other end, an older person that's worn out and you're just starting your career. Focus on being a good person, focus on being fun, move with a purpose. And I would say that would be my regret is uh, I shouldn't have tried to be perfect. I, I should have expanded wider through my school applications, started earlier. Uh, same with residency programs, same with uh, potentially pursuing that impossible to achieve fellowship. Keep working, keep getting yourself better. But the main thing is to summarize is I took a lot of extra time constantly trying to get the perfect resume, constantly trying to get the perfect grades. And what happens is I missed out on a lot and I could have been further along in my career. And I hear a lot of people mention the same thing because once you get out the other end, you realize some of the grades, some of the extra stuff you thought was important are not as important as having a great personality, being friendly with your patients. A patient's never asked me specifically what my grades are. They never asked me what type of extracurriculars they've done. They just want to know how nice you're going to be to them and how quickly you can take care of their problem. So to summarize, my biggest regret is focus on the stuff that matters. That's being a great person, moving with relative speed to get to that end of the career. Don't overwhelm yourself with always trying to get the perfect resume. Just get after it and take a shot. Love it. And The White Coat Investor was a great book for sort of personal finance too. So I'm kind of interested that the focus that you got from it was sort of more of the personal development and less of the financial development. You know, it it was, it, he applied it in a financial way. He broke down specifically students trying to pursue the perfect residency and the perfect medical school. So in his specific example was maybe go to the local school rather than trying to apply to the Ivy League school for three years in a row. There's always 
further training you can do. While yes, some pathways do close down and you can potentially take more time to try and pursue them. We do in the medical profession, at least me, I know a lot of people who have spent decades pursuing the dream degree. And when they get out the other end, they realize they just want a family and that they can't keep this pace up. So realize that it's a long road and you just got to get after it. You know, you just got to make a decision and get there at some point. Do you have any parting thoughts for students? So the main thing is uh, what we've echoed earlier is be a great, fun person. We want students that are fun to be around. You don't have to be a robot that can quote articles and have perfect grades. You're, you're living in the real world. We want a great, fun person that makes everybody's job easier. And I think anybody who works as a residency program attending, for the most part, will echo those thoughts. Any thoughts for physicians that might want to start becoming a preceptor? Get, get into it for the right reasons. I would say you really want to get involved in teaching. It's not a, it's probably not the best financial decision. You know, if you had a PA rather than a resident helping you, for example, it might not be as clean and efficient, but that's the thing, except that students aren't perfect and accept that we both have to be humble and learn from each other and that mistakes will be made. You know, we have to catch them, but you shouldn't always feel bad. We're here to improve and nobody's perfect. Gotta love it. Yep. It's about the education, not about the money. Well, Dr. Tom Berhendi, thank you so much for coming on the show and depicting for us what the role of podiatry is in medicine and sort of the different pathways between the medical physician degrees. Thanks, Chase. It's a pleasure being on with you. Thank you so much.